0: Good morning, church. I must confess that as someone who has spent 20 years doing youth ministry, one of my favorite things in the world is seeing our students and our children read the Holy Word of God. It is a beautiful thing, and, uh, and you did a phenomenal job, so thank you very much. Um, but this morning we come together, and it's the last Sunday of 2019. A lot of people are already beginning to think, if you haven't already started, about what New Year's resolutions you're going to make. Uh, so far, I think the only resolution that I have made is that I'm not making any resolutions. But that's uh, a joke. It's okay. But there are, there are a lot of people that, that want to use the, the fresh start of a new year to try to, to make a fresh start of some aspect of their own lives, there, you know, some people might be uh, uh, calling up Jenny Craig. I don't know if that's still a thing, uh, or, or if the whole Jenny Craig line still exists. But there are a lot of people who want to take better physical care of their bodies. Maybe they put a down payment on a Peloton bike, uh, or, or or join a gym, or something like that. But there are people that want to uh, take better physical care of their bodies. Maybe you're one of those kind of people that said, you know, this year I'm going to get my finances in line and so I'm, I'm going to call up Dave Ramsey and I'm going to do the total money makeover and I'm going to get the envelopes and I'm going to write a budget and all of that. Or maybe you're uh, in the business world, you're, you're looking at uh, just where you work, and you say, you know what, I want to be a better leader, and so I'm, I'm going to, to pick up some leadership books by Patrick Lincioni and, and I'm going to, to study what it means to be a, a better leader. And oftentimes, the resolutions that we want to make, the things that we want to improve in ourselves, we look to people outside of ourselves as we want to improve something in our own life. When I was younger, for me, that was actually looking at other artists. Before I went into ministry at one point, I really… not at one point, for years, I wanted to be an illustrator for Marvel Comics. I loved drawing. And, and for those of you that have seen my Instagram, I still get a little geeky on there sometimes. But… uh but I would, I would get art books from, from Jack Kirby and, and Steve Ditko or my personal favorite, Mark Bagley, and I would, I would try to imitate their artwork because I wanted to get better in that area myself. But as I got older, and especially as I began growing in my faith, the people that I wanted to emulate, the people that I wanted to imitate, began to change. I wanted to be more like men who loved their families. I wanted to to imitate the people who would pour themselves into others. I wanted to be more like the people who were willing to give themselves away. And on a much grander scale, this is what Paul is driving toward in this passage of Philippians. He's challenging and encouraging the Christian believers toward unity and humility, because human nature is naturally selfish. You don't need to teach someone to be selfish. On Christmas Day, it it wasn't even lunchtime yet, and our kids were already whining that they wanted more stuff to unwrap. They wanted more presents. You don't need to teach people to be selfish. It comes naturally, because humility is not in us. Just like we often look to people we want to imitate to influence our resolutions, we have to look to someone outside of ourselves to find true humility. And so as we read this passage in Philippians, I really believe that Paul is making the argument that every Christian should strive for humility. Every believer. It's not just something optional. It's not something for for those in leadership. It's not for pastors or elders or deacons. It's for every believer. Every Christian should strive for humility, not by trying harder. I'm just going to buckle down and I'm going to be be more humble. I'm going to be the most humble person I know. That's a humorous thought in and of itself. But in trying to strive for humility... The focus should not be on the self, but the focus needs to shift to Christ. Particularly as we look at this passage, first in verse 5, focusing on the mind of Christ. Focusing on the mind of Christ in verse 5. Secondly, in verses 6 through 8, focusing on the sacrifice of Christ. So first focus on the mind of Christ, then focusing on the sacrifice of Christ, and then lastly in verses 9-11, through focusing on the glory of Christ. Before I go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your Word that You speak to us today through Your Word that was written generations ago. That these are not just uh, collections of of wisdom or moral teachings, but God, that Your Word is living and active. It It transforms lives. It renews broken hearts. So God, speak to us this morning. Pour out Your Spirit in this place. Speak to us through Your Word in spite of myself. Let Your glory be known through Your Word. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Christ. Amen. (coughs) So for a quick context, because we haven't been in Philippians for a while, uh, Paul is writing this letter to the church in Philippi, and at the time he's actually under house arrest. Most likely he's uh, under house arrest in Rome. Um, But this is an emotional letter. It's full of, of joy and excitement and encouragement. And he's calling for the believers there in, in Philippi uh, to, to strive toward Christian unity and humility. In fact, chapter 2 opens with a challenge that if, if Christ has done these things, which He did, then you should live this way. And he says, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And he begins unpacking how Christians can strive toward humility with his first point in focusing on the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. The verb form in in have this mind uh, for those of you that that like the grammatically nerdy things which I enjoy, uh, but it it is an active imperative verb which means it's an it's challenging and encouraging the believers. You need to do this. Capital letters, three exclamation points. Do what this says. It's not a suggestion. It's not, oh, you, you might want to consider this. No, it, it is have this mind. In fact, literally, it is be mindful of this. This is what you should do. This is the way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This theme and thought of being in Christ Jesus is a theme that is throughout Paul's letters of being in Christ, in Jesus, Christ in you, Jesus in you, that it is a relationship where you and Christ are in one another. And if you're in a relationship, you show it. Not that you, you flaunt it like the, the, the high school relationship where you, like you're holding hands at the mall. All that, like, I, I remember just the awkwardness of those first relationships. Um, and Not necessarily in that manner, but if you're in a relationship, you show it by your commitment and affection toward one another. No couple gets married and then goes to live in separate homes. Husbands, you don't say that you love your wife and snuggle with her on the couch while you're texting an ex-girlfriend. Wives, you don't plan a romantic getaway with an ex-boyfriend. If you're in a relationship, you show it by committing faithfully to one another. A relationship takes commitment and sacrifice and service toward one another. You encourage one another. You put the other person's needs above yourself. And Paul says, this should be your mindset now. That you are in a committed, faithful relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, your attitude in Christ should be like the attitude of Christ. It's more than just wearing a a WWJD bracelet, which I don't know if, if people still wear those. I know that they were really big when I was growing up. Uh, and you had to have one of like every color, and you, you know, the more bracelets you had, the more the better Christian you were, that kind of thing. But uh, it, it's more than, than just slapping the, the ichthus, the Jesus fish on the, the back of your car, or as I like to call it, a crucifix. Sorry. Um, but it's more than just posting inspirational scripture verses on Instagram or, or Facebook. Paul's imperative emphasis on have this mind is so emphatic that he's implicitly making the argument that if you do not have this mindset, then you might not be a Christian. And I know that's kind of a a bold, offensive statement for some people that have grown up in the church But Paul is making the argument that if you do not have the mind of Christ, then Christ is probably not in you. In 1 John 4 8, John writes, Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And later in verse 20, he says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. There is a direct correlation between the humility and love that we show towards others and the impact that God has had in our own lives, or at least our understanding of that love that God has shown to us. So Christian, do you have the mind of Christ Do you love other people, not for what they have done or can do for you, but do you love them because they're people in need of a Savior? Do you love them because they're people made in the image of God? Do you put others' needs before your own, not in a a sense of self-neglect, not that you're putting yourself out of house and home, To help other people, but are you helping other people out of a humble love for others? Not for what you can earn, not for the the status or the, the praise that it might grant you, but do you love others because that is the mind of Christ? Paul then moves how to have such a mindset by focusing on the sacrifice of Christ. Amy and I have been married and May will be 10 years. And naturally like any two humans that are naturally sinful at heart, we have our disagreements and our arguments, and my natural tendency is to think that she is wrong because I am right. Not not because of anything against her, but in in my selfishness and my sinfulness, I want to be right. And that's in regard to any person, not just her. But the more I know her and learn her, the longer we're married and I, I get to know this woman who is my wife, as I've gotten to know her, it helps me understand not just her, but the decisions that she makes. Knowing my wife helps me understand her mind and her actions, her motivations. And that's what Paul is setting up here as he describes Jesus in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. To get a little… Uh, in you, you might enjoy this, uh, for it's a Greek reference, but the, the Greek word here for form is, is morphe. That it's, it, it's a form of the same substance. By, by using this word for form of, of God, it's actually a, a claim of deity of Christ. that That Jesus is not similar to God. He is of the same essence and substance as God. He is equal to God. He is the very nature of God, but He does not come in His full glory. He does not cling to it. He does not grasp it, but instead, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The phrase, made himself nothing, literally translates as he emptied himself, poured himself out. He did not give up his deity, but he emptied himself, and this is one of the most amazing things that, that, I, I, that comes from being able to, to study the, the Greek language, uh, is that the verb for emptied actually means that it, it was an emptied by adding. He emptied himself by adding. He added the form of a servant. And this word for form is different. It's not morphe, it's not the same substance, it's schema, which is he put on the outward appearance of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He's the morphe of God, the same substance of God, but he emptied himself by adding the schema of a servant born in the likeness of men. His godhood was not taken away. He did not give up being God, but his godhood was veiled. It was covered up. For a very crude example, imagine you had a, 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 a brand new Porsche or Lamborghini or something, and you go out to the back roads of Monk's Corner down these dirty, muddy roads, and you're splashing mud all over the place to the point where you can no longer even see the paint job of the car. The car still has its value and worth, but it is veiled by the filth that covers it. It is valuable, but its value is veiled and as I said, that is a crude example, but that is how Christ emptied Himself. He is still fully God, but He veiled His deity by putting on the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of man. And as He came as a servant, He did not come as a butler to wait on people hand and foot. He does not come to, to serve you little finger sandwiches and juice boxes, but He comes as a bond servant. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus Himself says that even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Christ knew that His mission was to come and to serve by dying. His life was more than just service. It was not less than service. He definitely did serve, but it was more than just service as He came to die. And His service fulfills uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapters 52 and 53, that the servant will be high and lifted up, but he had to suffer he was wounded for our afflictions. And in his humility, he was born in the likeness of men. He did not serve from a position of safety or power. He did not just sit on the throne and kind of point his finger and say, All right, you guys, you can do this to, to save yourselves. No, he came. In fact, this is what we just celebrated through Advent, was Emmanuel, God with us, that He did not leave us to ourselves, leave us to our own destruction. But God took on flesh and dwelt among His own creation. I'm thankful that the Millers are are with us this morning because they're the, the living example of what Christ did for His people as they gave up the comfort of of what they knew here in America where everything is is in a language that they comprehend, and there's the, the comforts and familiarity of how they grew up. And they gave that up to go and serve in Greece. That is a living representation of what Christ does for you and for me to give up the comfort of sitting on the throne, and to go to dwell among a people that need to hear the gospel. And this humility means getting involved in the junk of other people's lives. It's not just doing a, a book bag drive. It's, it's not just doing a, a soup kitchen once a year, but humility means getting to know the people, not just the people that you worship with, but the people that you are in community with, the people that live around you. It's getting to know them, getting to grieve with them. Humility means setting aside your own comfort to be with others. And that's the beauty of Jesus. This man who is both fully God and fully man is involved in the junk of your life. And He didn't just come to live and to serve, but He came to die. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Son of God, the Word became flesh, humbled Himself to the point of death, an excruciating, shameful death. The Christian life is not about comfort. It's not about a certain status in the surrounding culture. It's not about having a weekly checklist and saying, all right, well, I, I did my Bible study uh, this week. I went to church this week. And, uh, you know, I I've, I've did all of my Bible readings for this week. The Christian life is about loving others selflessly. So loving others how Christ loved you. Humility is not about thinking less of yourself but humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking that you are absolutely miserable and worthless, but it's actually just think of yourself less and think of others more. Think of Christ more. And you can only share the humility of Christ by focusing on the glory of Christ. Picking up in verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of what Christ did and His humble obedience, God exalted Him. Because of the obedience of the Son, the Father gave him the name above all names. And we're used to the name, or to the concept of of names carrying authority, of of names having power and impact. If you were to, to be searching or applying for a new job and you needed a letter of recommendation, A letter of recommendation from me would only go so far, but if you were to to show up to a, a new job with a letter of recommendation from someone like Bill Gates, that's going to have a lot more impact because of the name of who he is. If you had the option of going out to dinner knowing that that dinner was cooked by me, or if you had the option of going to a dinner that was cooked by someone like Alton Brown from Good Eats on the Food Network. I love that show. But you're probably going to pick him because of the, 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 who he is. His name is associated with authority in that subject. We know that names carry authority. And the name that Jesus has was hinted at in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The name that Christ has been given is worthy of our praise and glory. And when He comes again in all of His glory, the world will not see Him as the humble servant that He was the first time He came. <clears throat> they will see Him as a glorious King, the great I Am, the Word that became flesh. And at His name, every knee shall bow. Every person, every knee Ever, either willingly or unwillingly, the people that love Jesus, the people that hate Jesus, the people that are indifferent to Jesus, when He comes again in His glory, every knee will bow and say, "He is the Great I Am." A.W. Tozer is a, a, a famous theologian uh, that I, I love. Uh, at least some of his writings. I haven't been able to read all of them. But in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about a person is what they think about when they think about God. Because what you think about God directs everything that you do. Is God just a vague moral concept? Is it just one idea out of many on how to be a better person? Because Scripture tells us that when you recognize who Christ is, that He is God in the flesh who came to live among His own creation, that He came and He lived in humility and He took the punishment for your sin. He died an excruciating, shameful death that you and I deserved to give you His righteousness so that you could be called Holy Child of God. This Jesus will come again in glory to reclaim His people. When you think about what God has done for you, when you think about the impact of this relationship, the vertical between God and yourself, it directly impacts the horizontal relationships. Understanding the love that God has for you will directly impact the love that you have for the people around you. How you treat people, not just the people that you love, but the people who bother you, who, who you irritate. The people that when no one are, is around that you say, oh, I hate that person. Understanding God's love for you will shape how you interact with your own family. first thing in the morning when you get to work and there's that annoying coworker, or when you start back to school and there's that person in your class that just grates on your nerves. Your understanding of Christ's love for you should directly impact the way you treat and love that person. Because suddenly, life is not about you. You are not the king of your own life but you are in service to the one true King. Others are not beneath you, but everyone around you is just as you are in desperate need of someone outside yourself to save you. Someone that has the power and authority to save them. Recognizing Jesus Christ as Lord and King will lead to humility, or should lead to humility in every area of your life, in your personal life, the way that you treat people, here in the church, to have unity in the midst of distinctions and disagreements, and in our culture, the compassion that you and I have for the lost. Christian, let the world see the humility and the glory of Christ shining through you. And so as we finish this morning, I want to ask you, I want to to challenge you that as you make your resolutions this year, are you going to focus on yourself? Trying to become the best you that you can be? Are you going to be grasping for your own glory and desperately trying to make your own name great? Or... Will you pursue the mind of Christ by focusing on His sacrifice and resting in the glory of His holy name? Christian, how will you choose to live? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, God, we confess that far too often we live for the glory of our own name. We strive and we struggle trying to make ourselves better people by our own efforts. And it's exhausting. And God, we can't do it. And so Lord, we come before you and we confess our desperate need of your son. We need Jesus. We need His salvation. We need His humility because it is not in us. Lord, as we embark on a new year, God, I pray that we would be transformed by Your Word, that Your Spirit would take our hearts of stone and make them into hearts of flesh and our minds would be so fixated on Christ that His humility and the glory of His name would shine brightly through our lives. Be glorified in us, not by our own work, but by what Christ has accomplished. And it's in His holy and wonderful name we pray. Amen.